So just in terms of understanding blessings, what, what, what we're trying to do from this framework that, that I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting is we're trying to get it away from what I hear your, your, um, your concern is, which is to get it away from a rote sort of like ritualistic um, and therefore inherently perhaps meaningless um, uh, place and, and showing where it actually lives in terms of like the, the rubric or, 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 or the matrix of reality. Meaning to say that again, there are three primary um, garments for, for the soul, which is thought, speech, and action. And, and that you're, you're, you're bringing down this, this light, this chef of this bracha, in the form of an actual action. And that speech, uh, understood in this way, is sort of the intersection between thought and, and action. And so, and so it's very important because in terms of the framework of reality, um, this dimension that we inhabit is known as Olamasiya, which means the world of action. Which means that um, from the Torah perspective, action is actually really primary. It's really, really primary. And that actually works for us, and in some ways, it works against us. And so, uh, let's just look at both sides for a moment. How does it work for us? Because what Hashem says after the whole um, incident of the flood is, is that, you know, if you sort of like contemplate and fantasize about all sorts of things that maybe we shouldn't be doing, unless you actually do them, I'm not going to count them against you. Meaning, as long as something is in the realm of thought or fantasy, and you don't actually act on it, it it's not counted as though you've done it. So in that way, um, this idea that we live in the world of action works for us, because unless we actually do something, we haven't done it, right? In the way that it works against us, is that even if we have like a very sincere intention, Unless we actually do it, it doesn't, well, God counts the thoughts of the heart and everything like that, and he knows if we really want to do something that's, that's meaningful, but it's not nearly the same thing as actually doing it. So let's just review those two sides. One is, if you sort of fantasize about doing something that's perhaps inappropriate, but you don't do it, it's not counted as though you did it. But if you sort of have a desire to do something good and you don't do it, it's not counted as though you did it. So again, here you see the primacy of this dimension of the world of action that we live in. And, um, and again, this sort of, in many ways, runs counter in, on, 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 in, in both instances against the sort of like Western style uh, way that we've been brought up. And, and, and I'll tell you how it runs counter in both ways. One is people will say, well, if you're thinking about all that stuff anyway, that's who you are and that's what defines you. So, you know, what's the difference whether you do it or whether that's all you're thinking about? <laughs> you know, because that's just you, isn't it? Right? And so, so it doesn't really, so it goes against you on that way. And then it's also the opposite the other way, which is that, no, if you had it in your heart, that's the same as if you did it. So it's like literally the opposite 
of the Torah approach on both levels. You know? So, so again, this can lead to a false conclusion. So let me just take it one more step so we, we have an integrated understanding of this, which is that the Torah ideal is to do the action with all of your heart. <laughs> In other words, one might be left with the understanding that, you know, like, you know, kind of like um, the, the Nike kind of thing, just, just do it, right? And there might even be a, a time and a place for that type of philosophy, right? But that's not the ideal. It, it should be just do it with all of your heart and soul, <laughs> you know? So, so, so that, that is the ideal. And again, just, I, I just want to bring you back to that model of thought, speech, and action. Just uh, un, imagine thought is above you, speech is now going below to where your mouth is, and then action is coming where your, where your hands are already. And you want that flow to manifest from above to below. And that's, that's, that, that's, that's really important. Um, and so um, all these things come down in terms of blessings. And so uh, we, have a, we have a rule that if you are unsure whether to make a blessing or not, don't make it. And again, this is, this is something that would sort of, to, to when I first learned that rule, that runs, that's a counterintuitive thing to what I would imagine a spiritual being um, would approach uh, life from. I would imagine that, God, I want to I serve you so much, and here I have an opportunity to make a blessing. If I, didn't, if I don't know if I made the blessing, all the more so I want to say it again to make sure that I made the blessing, right? But now, and, and that makes perfect sense. But that's actually not the halakha. And, and the counterbalance is really worth sitting on for a while and, and, and exploring. Because the, the, the reason why we don't do that is because we say, hey, you think it's such a simple thing to say Hashem's name? Like we're just playing fast and loose with Hashem's name? You know, like, like it's sort of like there's like all of a sudden the, the yira and the humility has to kick in. Who am I saying these blessings to? Who am I thanking to begin with? You know, there's there's um, there's a halacha that that's um, well, th- there's a halacha about kibudave um, um raising your children, or rather, the the other side of that, how to. Um, how to properly respect your parents from the Torah perspective, because we have to honor our parents. And there are two very interesting halachas. And, and keep in mind that really I'm, I'm talking about not just um, our parents here, but, th- but this is a gateway to understand our relationship with God, who's obviously our ultimate parent, right? And by the way, the, the Torah very much wants us to make this, this sort of... Um, this convergence in our minds of how we respect our parents and honor our parents and how we respect and honor God. That those things are intentionally supposed to go together. And the clearest um, example of that is that um, the, when we have the Aseris Adibros, the, the, the Ten Commandments, which technically is 14 commandments, but they're listed in two sets of five on two tablets, right? 
The first tablet are the person-to-God mitzvot, and the second tablet are the person-to-person mitzvot. Right? So on the person-to-God mitzvot, very famously is the commandment to honor your parents. Right? So that should be on the second set, not the first set. But God is challenging us and, and, and urging us to understand our relationship with our parents very much in the context of our relationship with our ultimate parent. Okay? So now let's get into the nitty-gritty of a couple of halachas in terms of honoring our parents because this will show on our relationship with God as well. And this is all being brought in the context of when in doubt, don't say the blessing because we don't just mention God's name, so to speak. Okay, I just want to make sure that all the pieces on the board are clear right now. So anyway, um, so, so here are two halachas. One is um, you don't sit in your parents' chair without asking permission. Right? That's your parents' chair. You don't just sit in that chair. And that's one of the forms of honoring your parents. Okay? Now, or fearing your parents, you know, you have to have both. Uh, or being in awe of your parents, if you will. Um, so, so, I'll tell you why that's such a great halacha in terms of, um, in terms of uh, raising your children. Because they have to understand their boundaries. You know, when God gave the Torah at Mount Sinai, he said, you know what? There's a boundary before the mountain. Don't touch the mountain. You know? Like, these, these boundaries, again, this, this runs against a lot of one's, what would be one's intuitive understanding of spirituality. Like, God's speaking from the mountain, like the whole mountain's lighting up. How can I show my love better than to run to the mountain and hug the mountain or run up the mountain? Like, that would be me. Now, I'll give you an example of my own, you know, uh, you know, failing in this, in this respect. Someone uh, was a, a, a scribe in Jerusalem, you know, and he's writing a Torah. It's like the first Torah that he's written, and you write it in sections. And he showed it to me. He was very proud, you know, of what he had done. And I was so amazed, and I wanted to express it. So I kissed the parchment, like, directly. And I guess I had some, some, something on my face, and I, I stained the parchment. And he looked at me, and he was like, what, what did you just do? And it's like, I'm like, yeah, I'm running to the mountain. But it's, you know, God said, don't touch the mountain. You know, there's a boundary before the mountain. There's, that's your father's seat, or that's your mother's seat. Like, understand where you fall vis-a-vis the grand hierarchy, right? So that's, that's important. That's important. Now, I'll tell you another thing, and this is the reason why I brought it up to begin with, is that according to halacha, you're not supposed to say your parents' first name. Okay? You don't call them, hey, Joe. I love you, Joe. No, that's your, whatever you want to call him. That's your dad, you know, your Abba, whatever, your Tati, whatever you want to call him, you know. It's not Joe. Your friend is Joe. Your brother's Joe, right? Your cousin's Joe. Your dad's not Joe, right? So that's, that's again, there's a certain form of Yira. And, and you see, the thing is, is that... Um, 
I'll give you, I, I'll tell you a funny story. Well, funny to me at least. You have to kind of imagine it happening. This, ha- this my, my, my children have been brought up understanding these halachas, and they really are very good with these halachas. And it's, I think, I, I imagine that it's kind of shaped them in some way. So I, I think it's a really good thing. So, um, so they know that they don't call me David, right? They wouldn't do that. So, uh, so now there's a law. I'll tell you this story. So there's a, a, a law, uh, meaning the United States government's law, which is that a one parent can't take a child over the border without a letter. Okay? The reason is because they don't want, you know, in custody battles and things like that, you can have a parent run off with some of the children. And they can go to another country, and they want to make sure that one parent isn't just taking children across borders. Right? So if you think about it, it's actually a very good law. So, but, but at the same time, sometimes a parent, you know, let's say you're going to a, a wedding, you know, in another country, and both parents can't go, and you want to take the kids, whatever it is. So you have to be able to do it. So what's the solution? You have to have a letter that says that this parent has permission to take the child. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think it's a good law, right? So I was going to a wedding in Canada, and I was bringing uh, my son, and we forgot the letter, right? So this is now possible kidnapping situation, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so my son was about four years old, and the border guard, right, because we're standing in front of the border guard, says to my son, do you know who this man is? Right, pointing to me. And then he says, yes. And then he says, what's his name? Mm-hmm. Now my son knew the halacha that he can't say my name. <laughs> and the police are trying to figure out, like, am I kidnapping this kid? So my son then says, the most incriminating thing you can imagine. He turns to me in front of the police and says, do I have permission to tell them your name? <laughs> All right? Which is beautiful, if you think about it. It's absolutely beautiful, you know? So somehow, you know, I mean... The, the innocence of it all shined through, and, and it didn't, you know, they didn't, like, handcuff me. <laughs> but, but, but again, it's sort of like, again, there's such, a, there's such a jumble of teachings that are thrown at us. And the Torah organizes them very, very beautifully and, and lays them out very, very beautifully. But unless you have the guidance of Hashem's own wisdom, it's very easy to jumble these things together. And what I'm referring to is the idea that we have godliness within us, but we are not God. And there are direct implications to that in terms of our behavior and how we approach the world and how we approach different certain hierarchies, right? And, and we have to appropriately situate ourselves within the matrix in order to realize our full godliness. Do you see? So that's, 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 why, that's why halacha is so beautiful. See, a lot of people, halacha 
really means the way. It means the way. It means to walk, because the word holech is, is the root of halacha. And, and so, in other words, we have, this, we have this path. And if you think about it, everything has a path in the world. You know, atoms, subatomic particles, like the way they rotate around the nucleus, they, they have a very defining path. That's what makes this carbon a carbon atom, and that's what makes this, you know, plutonium or whatever it is. You know, and, and if you think about fish, they, they, stream, they, they swim upstream like, like fishermen know like where to get the salmon at a certain point in the year because they have a, they have a migratory path as well. You think of like the, um, you know, in San Capistrano, like the swallows, like they, they also know like ev- everything in nature has a path and human beings have a path as well. But what differentiates human beings from everything else, from planets, which have an incredibly precise path, like from the highest to the lowest, everything has an incredibly precise path. What distinguishes human beings is we have the free choice to deny that we have a path. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a path. We do have a path. But God gave us the ability to deny that we have a path. See, that's, that's, that's big. That's a big idea, you know? So, so and, and then, in terms of embracing the idea that we have a path, that is not a marginalization of our individuality. That doesn't make us less. That's just a recognition of reality. You know, because look, like, let's say you have two people, just to give a kind of a crazy example. One of them tells you that he's the, um, the czar of China, right? And the other one's like the night manager at a Wendy's, right? <laughs> I pick the night manager of the Wendy's over the czar of China. First of all, there is no czar of China. The guy <laughs> is clearly insane, right? But in his insanity, he's created a global position of leadership for himself, <laughs> right? So, you know, better like a little reality than a truckload of nonsense, Right? So, you know, there, there has to be a little humility that sets in for a person to recognize there is a soul within me, and this soul is infinite, and I am an aspect of God. This is all true. But God is beyond infinity. God is beyond infinity. So where do I situate myself within that? You know, let's just look at numbers for a moment, Okay. Because there are levels of infinity, and it's very clearly, they're, they're nice examples in math. So I'll just give you one example. Between the number 1 and 2, and I'm talking about between every integer right now, but just to give you an example, between the number 1 and 2, there are literally an infinite series of numbers. Because there are random numbers, irrational, irrational numbers, that will just continue one point, and I'm making up these numbers, six, five, seven, two, one, eight, nine, two, three, five, six, and never stop. Which means that if you're within that, if with you're within that particular number, you will never get to number two. Because that one never stops. So you have one level of infinity is just between the number one and two, right? 
But then you have another expression of infinity, which is one, a hundred, a million, a trillion, a billion, just on and on and on and on and on and on, right? But then you have another expression of infinity, which is beyond all that. I mean, you can't even quantify it. You don't even have the vocabulary to quantify what that is. And now we're already getting to the more heavenly levels, the more godly levels, right? So we do have an aspect of godliness, which is an aspect of the infinite within us. But we have to situate that infinity among ever greater hierarchies of infinity. And this is where we get lost and confused because people, people make God very small. You know, I heard Reb Shlomo say it many, many times, and he would always say it with almost like pain in his, in, his, in his voice. He would say, why are you making God so small? All the time he would say it. And, 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 and it's true. You know, there's this, you see, the Rebbe's really prized imagination. Because imagination, when we think of imagination, you know, we think of like Disney, like the Imagineers, you know what I mean? Like, wow, that was a great roller coaster. You know, okay, well, that's one aspect of it. But another, another aspect of imagination is the ability to grasp like ever widening gyres, you know, ever widening, you know, spiritual realms. But then a person can't just imagine those things and see them as an aspect of their own greatness. They have to imagine those things and then situate themselves within that. And so again, that's why, you know, that's why that's why that's why humility is so 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 huge and why See, this is a big key right now. And sort of we arrived at it organically, thank God. Which is how we're to understand what would otherwise seem to be paradoxical to make perfect sense, which is how Moshe Rabbeinu, who has the greatest grasp of the infinite ever, and remember, the Rambam brings that Moshe is the greatest prophet ever, and that even Mashiach won't be as great a prophet as Moshe Rabbeinu, right? He'll be greater in other ways, but in prophecy, Moshe remains the greatest, like, human being's ability to grasp the infinite, okay? Now, what's, so what's the paradox? That he was also the most humble person who ever lived. So here you see the intersection of humility, and at the same time, the ability to grasp the, the total infinite, and that there's no contradiction, and that his humility didn't hold him back from grasping the infinite. In fact, it enabled him to grasp it most accurately. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of um, a, a definition of genius that I, that I heard, and I can't quote the source, but I, I was really moved by this, which is, which is that genius is the ability to see things as they actually are, right? Like, if you talk about, say, Einstein's grasping of the curvature of space, he didn't just sort of, like, paint a curved space canvas and say, space is curved, and everyone said, oh, yeah. No, 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 he actually saw that the universe, through computations and all the rest, that, that the universe itself was, was that way. 
So in other words, his genius was that he grasped what was actually there. And so again, if one wants to grasp what actually is there, humility is a necessary quality to be able to do that. Because you have to situate yourself realistically and accurately within the context of something much greater. And again, this is not a diminishment of our individuality. See, we always think that that's going to come at the price of, okay, so now I'm a robot. Great, thanks. Oh, thanks for giving me the robot card. No, that's not what it is. That's not what it is. And again, what my favorite example of this, and again, I wish I could tell you who told it to me, but it, it um, just kind of seared itself into my brain when I heard it, which is... Um, one of the larger Masechta's um, volumes of the Talmud is uh, Gemara Sukkah, right? I mean, it's, it's big, like, you know, like we just walk in, we see a hut, you know, it's sort of like, okay, you know, there's a lot of learning, like had to make one and make it kosher and, you know, can you make a two-story one? Can you make one on a camel? Can you make one in the, on a branch in a tree? Can you make a round one? You know, there's like lots of questions. You know, are you, have you fulfilled your mitzvah of being in a sukkah if you lie under the bed in the sukkah? You know, there's all, there's all sorts of like brain-bending questions. And there's a lot of math and there's a lot of charts and there's a lot of stuff, you know, going on. Can you do it under the, the shade of a mountain? Can you do it under the branch of a tree? You know, where's the shade coming from? A lot, a lot, a lot of questions. But in terms of the actual construction of the sukkah itself, you would think if there's so many laws, and it's such a big volume of Talmud, and, and you're following the laws, every sukkah should look the same. And what you see is, have you ever seen two sukkahs that look the same? Like the coolest thing about sukkahs is that everyone personalizes their sukkah. It's like, you know, and if you've been lucky enough to be in some fairly outrageous sukkahs, you know that they can be like wild expressions of a person's personality, you know? I mean, I've been in some sukkahs that are like, you know, way better than nightclubs, you know, really. I mean, you're like you walk in and you're like, whoa, this guy's got like a really like wild soul, you know? And you see it, you know? You just see it, it's like bursting out of them, you know? So, so how can that be? How can you have like the most detailed laws, you know, governing how you build this thing and every single one looks different? And that is real Torah in action, which is that the halacha will not diminish you. There will be a transition where you're like, what am I doing? And this so goes against how I've, you know, conditioned myself to react and this doesn't feel right to me and everything like that. And then at a certain point, it's sort of like, oh, wow, this is like, this is cool. This is cool. You know, I know this is, was true for me and I'm sure, you know, for all of you as well, you know, in, 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 when, when I started first keeping Shabbos, you know, it was so hard, you know, it was so strange, like, now I can't do this, and I can't do that, and I can't do this, and I can't do that, and everything like that, and then all of a sudden, when you sort of discover the rhythm of what this thing called Shabbos is, you go, oh, you mean I get to do nothing? <laughs> you, know, it's sort of like, you know, it's like all this, like this, like this whole space opens up where it's like, this is so cool, you know? 
but there's a transition and a lot of people run into the initial stages of you know Torah and they're like you know this I I'm not I'm not feeling it you know I mean I I had an experience the other day um I had had maybe too many shots of salted caramel stolichnaya vodka <laughs> which you know if you are permitted to drink I recommend <laughs> not too many shots but it's just this nice tasting uh, brand um and uh and someone and I was saying over this gamatria right that I I was sort of excited about maybe I'll give you a, maybe I'll, if it's in context I'll, I'll tell you later and you know this person is is a totally great person love this person love him but you know he was like yeah you know I'm, I'm really not feeling it <laughs> and I just lit into him I, and I, I did I, I was like you know and anyway I, I, I really I really like I really I really lit into him I really did like in a way that's unusual for me and he was sort of shocked that I was like basically just just yelling at him <laughs> and um, and he was like I was like this is and one of the languages that the Torah speaks is is a mathematical language and it's one of the infinite levels of the Torah and whether you're feeling it or not that is essentially a meaningless statement. You know? That, that, that's an aspect of the Torah's divinity. So, you don't like it? Okay, I'm, I'm sorry that, you know, the Torah got a bad review from you. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, know, you know, please unsubscribe me from your blog. <laughs> you know, I, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm you know, I'll tell you, uh, one of the great, back and forth, and I'm not going to do justice to it, I'm just going to paraphrase it, but a good friend of mine who now is like a, you know, very, very, you know, very sincere and, 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 and beautiful, uh, you know, uh, Torah person, but, you know, everyone goes through, you know, a journey and all the rest, and um, he was at a place where he was coming to a, a, a yeshiva in Jerusalem, and it's a serious yeshiva in Jerusalem that like really learns, you know, like Talmud especially, like very, very sincerely, very, um, you know, uh, very, with, with all their strength. And, and, and they were sort of interviewing him as to whether they felt he was, you know, could, could gain entrance to the place. And he said, I just, I, I just want you to know that I don't really believe this stuff so much. You know, and they said back to him, "Okay, we want you to know that we don't care if you believe it so much." <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, like that doesn't impinge on the truth of it, and and that's you know what I mean. It's not. This is what it is, and if you want to learn with us, that's great. But you have to understand that that this is where you're at, and so again, this touches on. Um, a, a, a larger question, which is really, in many ways, the great question, I believe, of our age, which is this concept of, um, is there an ultimate truth, right? 
And, and, and I, I believe very strongly that there's so much structure to the world that that, that, that structure and, and just, just how unified creation is. I'm not talking about people. People argue and have different opinions. But I'm just talking about the, the infrastructure, the materiality of creation itself. You know, we, we gave the example um, last week, and I just want to give another example, so I'll say this just very quickly. Just There were people who were coming to one of the great rabbis, I don't, I don't remember who, and, 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 and they wanted to ask him, you know, does God exist? Or they wanted to make an, an argument that God doesn't exist or that God didn't create the world or whatever it was. And um, while they were waiting for him, they, they saw this incredibly beautiful piece of calligraphy and they asked him when they saw him, where did this come from? Um, it was this beautiful poem that had been written and he said that the ink bottle spilled and the, the ink poured on the paper and that's where it came from. And they said, you know, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. These are all beautiful letters and words that, that coalesce into awesome thoughts. That's impossible. And he said, well, look at the world. Like, the world is so much more radically complex than this. And if you think that's impossible, how do you account for this world? Right? Clearly there's a creator. So I was thinking of a less good example. <laughs> I probably don't have to add to it. But I was just thinking, I just imagine like a, a jigsaw puzzle, Right? That's like, that's, have you ever seen the, like a big one, like with thousands of pieces, right? And everything fits together and it's like, makes a picture and everything, all these little pieces come together and everything like that. Imagine a, a jigsaw puzzle that has trillions and trillions and trillions of pieces. And everything fits together exactly. That's like the, and then you say, well, how did that happen? Oh, it just happened. How could it be? How could it be? How does that make any sense? How does that honestly make any sense? So, so the, the, the fact that the world has this awesome, beautiful structure to it shows that there's a, a guiding intelligence behind it. Has to, right? And so, and so, so the one who created the world has a plan for the world. That's what we say. We, we, Judaism says that to believe in God takes more than just to believe that there is a power that exists. You have to believe more than that if you want to quote-unquote believe in God. You have to believe that God actually has a plan for us and a plan for us individually and a plan for creation itself, right? You have to believe that God is good, right? Because that is totally totally integrated into the Jewish understanding of the world. That not just that there's a God who guides us and everything, but that, that he's good, right? So, so all of these things come into play. And, and all of these things come into play, but there's this huge conflict. There's this huge other side. Because you have this ultimate conflict in the world, and we're seeing it played out on the streets of Paris today and all over the world between shalom and emes, between truth and peace. You see, because the, the, the Western enlightened mode is that we're going to prize peace and in order to prize peace, what we're going to do is to say, 
All the groups have to get along with each other and coexist, which means that nobody is right. Right? We're going to separate church from state, right? And I'm not advocating that we should do otherwise. But just for us to understand Western civilization as it is right now, and we're going to have to eliminate the concept, ultimately, that any group is right so that all the groups can get along with each other. And what, what, what we lose in, in that, although peace is fantastic, and just to show you how much the Jewish people prize peace and always have, there are many, many examples of this, but just one example of it is um, there was a, a horrible, horrible king um, and uh, Achav, or maybe it was Menashe, I don't know. Unfortunately, we've had more than one. And he reigned for decades and it was a time of great, he really tried to restore, um, uh, or he was successfully restored uh, idol worship in Israel and all the rest. He was really like one of the, all-time worst. And, um, and it was a time of tremendous prosperity for the Jewish people. And the rabbis asked him in the Talmud, how could it be? You know, you have a king who's like, you know, campaigning for idol worship all over the place. And meanwhile, all this blessing of like wealth and money is coming down. How do those two things coexist? And he said, the, the rabbis in the Talmud answer, that everyone was getting along with each other. So, and that God really liked that. God really liked the fact that everyone was getting along with each other. So there are great benefits to shalom and everything like that and, 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 and people getting along with each other and blessings that come down. But ultimately, we don't have the ultimate sort of focusing of creation itself or the finishing, the full evolution of creation itself until you have two things that align each other one is peace, but the other is truth. Where, where people recognize that there's one uniform, that, that Hashem is God, that Hashem is one, that, that we have a path in terms of the way that we conduct ourselves, that we all have something beautiful to contribute and we all have an infinite aspect to ourselves, but all of our infinities are aligned within the grand infinity. And so that's shalom and truth coming together, and that's the vision for the ultimate redemption. But unfortunately, you have two, polar, two polarized effects in society right now, because we haven't, we're not on the level yet. We either have something, this is the truth, and that manifests itself as a dictatorship, whether it's a, um, a uh, you know, like something that's like North Korea, or like something like Iran, right? Or ISIS or something like that. They're either a secular or religious dictatorship, right? That's where truth is reigning or their vision of truth is reigning, right? Or you have something like Shalom, right? Where anyone can do anything under the sun, just don't stop anyone else from doing anything under the sun, right? And so both sides haven't quite merged into one yet. And, and for that, we really need Mashiach. That's what Mashiach is going to do. Mashiach is going to be that individual blessed by God to reveal God's oneness in the world.
And then when everyone sees God's oneness in the world, everyone is all of a sudden going to be on the same page. And that's, that's, that's where we're heading. That's the roadmap of history. That's what's going to happen. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Because we're still struggling between peace and truth, peace and truth, peace and truth. Right? Yeah. Just that. Uh, so it's interesting when he says in this parsha that when it says that Aaron went out to meet Moshe, that Moshe was MS, Moshe MS, right? And Aaron is peace. And so Sazanus was saying that, that peace was peace and, and truth were coming together at that moment. That's awesome. Mm. Awesome. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, look at look at Look at the dynamics of what happened there, right? Because Moshe's like, one of Moshe's um, sort of like reservations in terms of leading the Jewish people when God approaches him is, but wait a second, I have an older brother. You know, that it should be Aaron. And, and if you think about it, it's, it's like, um, it, it's so amazing. You know, here he's being offered like by God directly, like this... This awesome like honor, right? You're gonna do your people are never gonna stop talking about you. You know, you're gonna be you're you're gonna be like the highest, greatest, like exemplar of, of, of human potential. And he's thinking, you know what? I've been outside of Egypt. My brother has been amidst the slaves in Egypt every day dealing with all the hardships and the horror. Right? This Holocaust that was happening over there. And he's my older brother. Is it right that, that, that he shouldn't be the leader of the Jewish people? And then, meanwhile, Aaron, what was Aaron thinking? Was Aaron thinking, hey, what's the deal? You know, this guy skips town, and all of a sudden he gets the job, right? <laughs> no, Aaron is thinking... Like, with such love, oh, thank God, you know, God's redeeming the Jewish people. And it's, it's my brother who's, who's, who's the one, and, and he's coming from such a place of peace and love, you know? You know, so each are overcoming, like, you know, when, when God speaks to Moshe from the burning bush, Moshe falls on his face, right? And I heard Reb Shlomo say, do you think that if Moshe hadn't fallen on his face at that moment, that he would have been, that, that he would have still been the one to do it. In other words, if, if, if Moshe's reaction was, God, what took you so long? <laughs> you, know, you know, I've been waiting around. If, if, if you think that was his attitude, do you think that he would have been the one? When God approaches him, he's just like, he falls on his face. He's like, you know, just total humility. So maybe um, can we can we talk about the parsha a little bit? Should we? <laughs> I guess we were talking about the parsha. I didn't know. Um, I, I just want to say over something that I heard also from the this. Oh no, actually from the Tiva uh, Shalom from the Slonimer Rebbe, and it, it moved me. You know. Maybe we'll maybe we'll get to it. We'll we'll, we'll build toward it um, because the burning bushes is like, you know, it's it's funny because it's like you always hear the burning bush, the burning bush, right? But maybe 
and maybe you get it when you hear it, but I, I never really got it. And the more you think about it, the more amazing it is, actually. So just in case you're just one of those people who haven't really, like, just, like, understood what the burning bush was, just on the simplest level. So imagine something completely on fire, but not burning. <laughs> completely engulfed in flame. Like, imagine, like, right now, I'm completely engulfed in flame. I'm on fire, and I'm just kind of talking, and, you know. It's like, but I'm on fire. I'm completely on fire. So you've got... A bush which has wood in it, right, which should burn, right? You've got this green bush, bless you, and it's completely engulfed in flames and on fire, actively completely on fire, but the bush looks exactly within the fire as though it would look if it wasn't on fire. That's like a really way out visual, right? Now, believe it or not, like the Kutzka Rebbe says, I heard it in his name, that people actually walked by that. No one, that other people like saw it and was like, oh yeah, all right. Oh, I'm going to be late. <laughs> gotta, gotta run. You know? Like, where are you going that you're late for an appointment in the middle of the Midian desert, by the way, right? But, oh man. So, so they say that, that Moshe stopped to look. And that's one of the keys to redemption right there. Amazing things are going on all the time, but are you stopping to look? You know, one, one tiny example, but it always kind of amazes me, is that uh, I was in shul a number of years ago, and I, I realized, oh, wow, this is the, it was a Friday night, and I was like, oh, this is, this is the Parsha where I started keeping Shabbos. And I was like, well, you know, how many years has it been? And so at that point, it was 20 years. I was like, oh, wow. So I've been keeping Shabbos for 20 years as of right now. I thought, you know, and this was like during the davening. I guess I should have been concentrating more on the prayers, but I decided to do some math instead. So I said, okay, so how many Shabbos is that? So I was like, okay, so that's 20 times 52, right? So that's um, 1,040, I think, something like that, right? So I was like, oh, 1,040. And then I realized that week I had just started a new job at 1040 North Las Palmas. <laughs> like that. So, but here's the point. Well, that could have been the point too. But <laughs> here's another point. I told my wife and she's like, do you know what? I'm more amazed that you noticed that than that it happened. <laughs> right? So what I'm saying is, is that there's wild stuff happening to us all the time that we're, we're not even noticing. You know, like wild stuff, like all of the time, like all of the time. You know, a, a, another example, and I've forgotten all the details, but I remember someone like, like was, came to me with like this question and I, and I, I thought, oh wow, you know, and I gave them like this, this example that really kind of came from my heart, like, which all focused on one particular word in the Torah, which isn't something that we were discussing at all. But I was like, you know what, this, your issue kind of reminds me of this teaching. And then, like, a few days later, I don't even know how or why this came to me, I realized that that word in the Torah was the gematria of her name. Wow. Right? So, where, who, who knows? 
knows what's going on in terms of just simple conversation with each other? The, the, the things that are being transacted. You know, just, just to go with it for one more time, just another, another thought that just I, I always love and always like amazes me is every single person, you know, our tradition is that there's 600,000 letters in the Torah and that each one of us is a letter in the Torah, right? Because there, there's 600,000 root Jewish souls. So every Jew is a letter in the Torah. So, you know, just kind of working with that, it seems to me that when we're here together, right, we're all different letters. We're spelling something right now. What it is, I don't know. It may be a pusik in the Torah. We're spelling something right now. But then it hit me again, but now we've been learning Torah together. So what we were spelling when we first came into the room is probably very different from what we're spelling right now. Right? All the letters are being rearranged into a completely different configuration, a different Pasuk. So, so the things that are happening before our eyes that we don't even, that we're not even aware of. Right? So, 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 so a person has to reflect. So Moshe looks at the, this, this site, this burning bush, which is completely engulfed in flames, but isn't burning at all. And then from this, God, through this, God speaks to him. And he hears the voice of God. He goes and he approaches. And again, I heard this from Rabbi um, Matas Yahu Solomon, the, the mashkiach, the spiritual leader of the Lakewood Yeshiva in, 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 in New Jersey, um, uh, the largest yeshiva in America, uh, and one of the biggest in the world. And he said something just great, just a classic Torah, in my opinion, which is that you know that Moshe comes to the burning bush and then God says to him when, when he has approached, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. So the question that he asks is, why didn't God tell him to take his shoes off before he entered into the place? So it's sort of like, why did you wait till I did something wrong, so to speak, in order to tell me not to do it? Just tell me in advance so that way I can stay in a good place, right? So, so what Rabbi Solomon said was, it wasn't holy until he approached. In other words, his desire to investigate reality and the truth transformed the ground into holy ground. His coming close is what made it holy. And then once it was holy, then he has to take his shoes off. But it wasn't that way until he approached. And that's, that's for all of us in our lives, too. Our approaching something, our taking life, this world, our mission, seriously, that imbues it with sanctity and Kedusha and lifts it up. Just the fact that we're yearning to know more and to understand God's ways. So now, one of the messages was that God was telling Moshe, the Jewish people are this thorn bush, right? Because they had fallen to a really low level. Like a thorn bush isn't like much of anything, you know? So, but you see how even though it's on fire and it's burning and it should disappear right now, right? Because at a certain point, how long can something stay on fire before, like if you make, if you make a fire in your fireplace, right? 
Like you see, all the logs are on fire, and it's like a beautiful visual. But at a certain point, all the logs collapse, and then they disappear, and there's no more wood left. How long can this bush stay on fire and not crumble and fall down and then just disappear? So now we're getting to the Slonimer Rebbe's Torah. But, but before we get there, just one, more, just one more thought, which is that the first thing that God was telling Moshe was don't give up on the Jewish people. You know, it looks like it's a done deal and that it's over and it's just a matter of time before everything collapses. Don't give up on them. And that's God's eternal message to each other and to ourselves. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on yourself. You know, that famous story about Reb Zusha. Reb Zusha, one of the great Hasidic masters, he said, I'm not afraid after 120 when I stand before the heavenly court that God is going to say to me, why weren't you Moshe? Why didn't you become Moshe? I'm, going, I'm terrified that God is, saying to, is going to say to me, why weren't you Zusha? Right? I put this amazing thing in you and in all of us. Why, why didn't you become you? What stopped you from becoming you? So we can't give up on ourselves, right? And when I say not give up on ourselves, I mean we can't give up on our spirituality. We can't give up on our souls. See, we have to make the distinction between our souls and our materiality, right? There are certain things that we hold on to materialistically, and those are things that perhaps we should give up. And I'm not saying, oh, so let's all walk around with, you know, a walking stick and a, and a bed sheet, right? That's not what I'm saying, right? But there are certain things that we cling to materialistically that when we say don't give up, we're not talking about those things. We're talking about our souls. And I'll give you just, here's something that I heard from Rabbi Smiles, um, and I thought it was so beautiful, and it puts this into context, because this is really tricky. This is like, this is hardcore now. Listen to this. It says that when we left Egypt, we kept on several times, we kept on saying, we want to go back to Egypt. And one of the explanations that the rabbis bring, why did we want to go back to Egypt? You ready for this? Because they had free fish and cucumbers. <laughs> totally not offered as a joke. You know, we had our bare necessities. And they were free. Okay, what, what did we get that free stuff in exchange for? <clears throat> Every, how about everything? How about everything? You know, I'll tell you something. I, I know someone who, it just breaks my heart into a million pieces. Ay, 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 Shem should save him. He was receiving a government check for disability. And, and maybe, maybe the truth is, is that he really was deserving of that and all the rest and, 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 and really did have, you know, all the problems associated with that and everything like that. On the other hand, though, knowing the person, he was a very talented person. And, and, and a very capable person in, in many, many ways. In many, many ways. And many times I talked to him and I was like, you know, you've got this going for you, why not? And I'm not talking about like this like undeveloped potential. I'm talking about things that were actually right there. Do something with that, like something that already existed. Do something with that. And one time he said to me, you know what, I'm afraid if I make 
a little bit more money, I won't be able to get these few thousand dollars a year from the government. But those, that guaranteed few thousand dollars put him in a category of essentially poverty, where he, no, complete <coughs> poverty, where he would then have to, in order to get those few thousand dollars to meet the rest of his expenses, and we're talking about bare minimal expenses, he had to basically, you know, beg all the time. But in his mind, he got, he, he, those were the, those were the fish and the cucumbers. He knew that he was going to get those things for free, a few things for free. And that stopped him from breaking out and, 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 and doing more. Now, I'm, I'm sure he has many other issues, and I'm not offering this in a judgmental way. He's a beautiful guy, and I love him. I really do. But there was something really tragic going on there. There's something tragic where he was exchanging his life for literally a few thousand dollars from the government and was afraid to make any, any more because then they'd catch him and then wouldn't give him this. So, so we have to, you know, once we were out of Egypt, it's like, no, don't go back to slavery for some free fish and cucumbers. It's not a good trade. All right? But that's just half the thought. Now listen to the second half of the thought, because this is where it really gets interesting. Then when we're in the desert, and it's time to go into Israel, according to one explanation of what was going on with the spies, the Meraglim, and everything like that, the reason why they give the bad report about Israel is because they don't want to leave the desert where the manna, the man, the, 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 the bread is falling down from heaven, now, I'm not talking about in terms of government support right now, although perhaps there's a, an aspect to that as well, you know? But it was this place of extreme spirituality. That's the point. It was, it was you know, these, I mean, this is, we call it, we call it the Doradea, the, the generation of understanding. So these were very exalted, very, the most exalted people, the people who stood at Mount Sinai. So th this is like, you know, you've got this, this well, this miraculous well, you've got this bread coming down, You've got, you know, like these clouds, which is, you know, so it's like, you know, the, the environment's really good, like everything's really cool, you know? But God didn't want us to just cling to that because now we've got to go into the land and we've got to start digging the land. You see, so you say, okay, well then, all right, I get it, you know, staying in Egypt for some free cucumbers and, 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 and fish? But wait, hold on to the story. Got to leave that, but leave the free bread falling from the sky and a day just dwelling, you know, in God's Torah and everything like that, and, and, and the water and the clouds and the environment and all the rest, and leave that also? That's right. That's right. And finding that balance and not, not stopping, continuing to, to go and to go and to go and to go, that's... That's, that's already, wow, okay, so life is challenging. You know, remember, when did we move in the desert? And, and the trip from, from Egypt to Israel is a microcosm of all of human history, right? Because the, the, the arrival from Egypt, which is, which is gallus, which is servitude, which is exile, into Israel, which represents basically Olam Abba and, and, and Mashiach and all the rest, 
That trip is a miniature of all of human history, okay? So, so while we were going through, while we were making that march, when would, did we know when to move over the course of the 40 years? And the answer is, is when the cloud lifted up, we would go, and when the cloud stayed over the Mishkan, the tabernacle, we would stay, okay? And if you look in the Torah, the thought that I just told you about, when the cloud lifted up, they would go, and when the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they would stay. That's repeated about three or four times in one paragraph. And like, like the rabbis are like, no, it can't be. There can't be that much redundancy on one simple thought. What's it talking about? And so I saw an explanation which really moved me, you know, which was when they wanted to stay in a certain spot and the cloud lifted up, they left, even though they wanted to stay. And when they wanted to leave a certain place, but the cloud remained, they stayed. Right? So in other words, there are certain situations in our life, like sometimes, you know, I know I've thought this about my own life, and I've said this to people over the years and things like that, where a situation like ends for them, and it's a little bit hurtful and traumatic, I say, you know, the cloud just lifted up. That's what it is. It's time to go. You know, like a job ends, I didn't want to get fired. I was really liking that job. I was really liking having you know, an, an income. <laughs> I was really enjoying that. Yeah, well, the cloud just lifted. Time to move. And it's sort of like, you know what? I can't stand this situation in my life anymore. I'm doing everything that I can to change it. But you know what? The cloud hasn't lifted yet. That's what it is. It's doesn't mean that therefore do nothing. No, continue to do everything you can to change it. But recognize that the cloud hasn't lifted yet. Right? So, so these are kind of like all the complex dynamics. But, but let's just say the, the Sloan Marebi's thought, and then and, and, and we'll, we'll finish with that. So back to the burning bush. So let's finish the previous point, I'm sorry, just which is that um, God was showing us that even though this thing was on fire and it looks like give up on it because just like when you make a fire in, a, in your fireplace or whatever it is, at a certain point the logs just fall apart and then just disappear. That's going to happen with this burning bush also, which stands for the Jew- Jewish people. At a certain point, it's just going to fall apart, so just give up on it right now because that's, that's the direction it's heading in, right? So God's saying, no, don't give up. And I'll tell you something, a thought that really changed my life and is very, very true for me. I heard it from Reb Shlomo, from Reb Tzadik Akoin, which is, he said, Reb Tzadik said like this, everyone says the world is getting further and further away from God. Reb Tzadik says, I say, the world is getting further and further away on the outside, but coming closer and closer on the inside. And I know that was definitely true for me. If you looked at me and my lifestyle and everything like that, before I became observant or committed to, you know, Torah mitzvot, whatever it was, you'd go, that guy? That's a joke, right? You're joking, right? But meanwhile, on the inside... I was moving closer and closer all along. 
And I was realizing as I'd say, check this thing out. I check it out, and then I'd say, okay, that's bankrupt. Check, check out something else. And I'd say, you know what, that's bankrupt too. And so, you know, maybe a more judgmental person would have looked at me from the outside and goes, ah, he's involved with this, he's involved with that, he's involved with this, that guy. But meanwhile, how was I involved? I was checking out, is there any truth to that? And it was like, no, nope, no truth to that. <laughs> no future in that. That's another brick wall. And then at a certain point you go, okay, so then what's left? What's left is the thing that was closest to me all along. The thing that I most wanted all along, but maybe was, didn't have the courage to commit to. Right? So that's another lesson from the burning bush which is that from the outside it might look like it's all over, but on the inside, something else is going on. And not to give up, but that doesn't mean on our materialistic desires, meaning to say the fish and the cucumbers, or the heavenly bread, and the streams and the clouds, that (coughs) stuff ultimately would be classified as material, right? But then you have the mission of the soul, which has to be invested in and has to go along. And the circumstances can change what what that means, what that actually means, okay? So you have to have rebbies who can guide you and good friends who can guide you in terms of what is the truth for me right now? Like Reb Shlomo says from the Yishvitzer, that the deepest thing a person can ask themselves is what does God want from me right now? You know, like if the Jews, when they had left Egypt, had said, no, we don't want the fish and the and the uh, and the and the and the cucumbers anymore for free, you know. And look, here comes the bread. Yes, this is what we want. We want the we want the the bread from heaven, and we want and we want, you know, this water in the clouds and to learn Torah. This is what we want. That would have been the most beautiful thing in the world, right? But then you see, to choose the bread from heaven and the, and the clouds and the water and everything like that, as opposed to going into Israel, where it's going to be a whole sea change. That all of a sudden goes from the right decision to the wrong decision. So you see that you can have in your, t- in, in your life, you can be making the right decision at that moment right then, but then that isn't the right decision a moment later. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, say, therefore, what's the answer? Mass neurosis. Let's all be neurotic. I was going to get a cup of coffee, but maybe I should get lunch. <laughs> That's what he was saying today, right? That's I mean, you were there. That wasn't that what David was saying. <laughs> it's like no, that's that's not. I'm not talking. I'm not advocating neurosis. I'm talking about. I'm talking about one's plan in life. Like I was saying yesterday, or last week. Are you on a journey or are you wandering? Right. That's that's what um, that's what I was talking about. And a journey means that you're saying like, like this is no, this is what this is what I need right now. This is this is what I need right now. Wandering is, you know what? This is what I, I needed at one point in my life, and I'm just going to stay on that because that's that's what it was. But again, you have to you have to do this with seichel. You have to you have to make these type of decisions with like great intelligence, not just you know every second. And when we're when we're talking about when we're talking about what does God want for me this moment, what we're talking about is when you're in a supermarket and you look around and you see someone's having trouble reaching for, you know, a can on a shelf. 
What does God want you, from you right now? To walk over to that person and to get the shelf. And to, and to hand them the can. That, that's what we're talking about on the moment-to-moment level. All right, so now, are we finally ready for the Sloan <laughs> Or let me ask you, am I finally ready to say what the Sloan is saying? Okay, now, now we can say it and we'll wrap it up. So, so you're, you see this burning bush is all on fire and, and it's, it's, it's got to collapse, but it doesn't. In fact, not only doesn't it collapse, but it becomes the vehicle, the portal, through which Hashem initiates the, the redemption of the entire world. And the giving of the Torah, by the way. Like the Torah is being given at that moment. What I mean to say by that is, a lot of people don't, aren't aware of this. The burning bush was at Mount Sinai. Like, do you all know that? That's where it was. The, the, the Torah tells you very clearly that the burning bush happened at Mount Sinai. So, so the, the, the whole redemption of the Jews from Egypt was in order to give them the Torah at Mount Sinai. It wasn't just like, now you're free to do what? To watch Netflix all day. That's not, that wasn't it. Like, okay, now I just like, okay, now, now I'm free. What is freedom? Freedom means that I'm a slave to my own desires constantly. That's not real freedom. Freedom means I have a, a, a genuine path. Right? That I'm participating in terms of the redemption of the world in an active, very real, you know, way. Okay. So, so the Slonimer Rebbe says, we had been brought down to the 49th level of, 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 of impurity. And then you say, at the 50th level, it's all over. Which is, which is true. This is what we say. But what, what God was showing us was this unbelievable demarcation between the 49th level to that place where the light exists that can never be extinguished. Meaning to say, and all of us have experienced this in one way or another in our own lives, where we've gotten to a wall and we can't go any further and somehow we find the strength to go further. You know, like Samuel Beckett, I can't go on, I can't go on, I'll go on. Right? Unbelievable quote. I can't go on. I can't go on. I'll go on. Right? So, the idea being that there's this place where we can go to the lowest place in our life and then God reveals the light that's been animating us that can never be extinguished. And that's what's coming out of the burning bush. And he likens it to a seed that gets planted. That the shell around the seed, when it gets underground, like it becomes, it disintegrates. That's the, 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 the shell around the seed is called the klipa. These are like the spiritual things around us that are sort of blocking us. So the seed can't grow until the klipa is broken, Right? But then the klipa gets broken and then the growth comes out. So at the moment where you think that it can't, it can happen. It can happen, right? Not only is there a shell around the seed blocking it, but now it's been buried. It's been buried. Like, how's it going to get out of that situation? And then all of a sudden it goes to the 49th level 
and then growth comes out. Mm. And so God is showing us through the burning bush that there's a point where it looks like it's all over, but then the light that's always there that never goes away begins to shine. And so all of us have that within us and Hashem should just really bless us just with all of the blessings because remember, Sefer Shmos is the book of the exile, but it's also simultaneously the book of redemption. And all of us should really be blessed that first of all, in our own lives, we should have eyes to see all the burning bushes that are around us, right? Like to really have eyes to see how much God is really present, right? And also to be able to know what point in our journey are we at and what's demanded from us at this moment in order to really expose the light of our own souls. Amen. Amen.